Hello, and welcome to History of Networking on Network Collective. So today we have Fred Baker joining us again. This is his second round. He did not get enough punishment the first time around. So he's coming back and Fred is gonna be talking with us about something called Raven. Now, I don't know much about Raven and I have no idea what it has to do with the internet. So Fred, why don't we start there? What, what is Raven and why are we talking okay. about it? Well, so there, in the IETF, we used to have a working group called Megaco. And Megaco was working on a set of protocols for setting up telephone calls, uh, similar to SIP and that kind of thing. And uh, one of the vendors, one of the people that was doing an implementation of this protocol, came in and said, well, I, I get requirements from my customers to install wiretaps. Um, so I want this, that, and the other tool in the protocol in order to allow me to to do that. Um, and the question fairly immediately uh, went from the authors on the particular paper, whatever it was, to the chairs and up to the area director, who's Scott Bradner. Um, do we modify protocols in order to meet law enforcement requirements? And uh, there's at least two ways to view that. You know, law enforcement is on our side. They're trying to make the right thing happen. Uh, maybe we want to be friendly to them. Uh, and service providers are generally reasonably accommodating, as long as law enforcement doesn't get stupid, um, in terms of giving them the information they're looking for, given that they have a warrant and, you know, all, all that. Um, the other side of things is, well, you know, what if the NSA ever gets in the act and starts playing around? Uh, we're very concerned about uh, lawful intercept and about uh, the eavesdropping and this, that, and the other. Um, and Scott decided that, pretty quickly decided, that it wasn't going to be sufficient for him to make a determination. He talked about it in the Internet Engineering Steering Group, the ISG, of which I was the chair. And um, then with their backing, opened up a mailing list. Now the mailing list was named Raven. So now and, Scott at this time, Scott at this time was co-chair of the working group doing the work on telco signaling call setup. Is that correct? Or why was Scott? Well, well he was the area director. Okay, he was the area director. I'm just yeah, trying to make so, sure. So yeah. Megaco was, there were actually more than one working group on it, but Megaco was one of the important ones. They were all in Scott's area. Okay. So, so he was the boss, if you will. Um, <clears throat> now, at the time, and actually until very recently when Scott disabused me of this, I had the idea that, that he chose the Raven because the Raven said never more. In fact, that's the only thing the Raven ever said. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so you, you thought that was a nod at the fact that it wasn't going to happen, but we're going to have the conversation anyway? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which is, in fact, how it came out. And I wasn't surprised, but it turned out that that wasn't at all what Scott was thinking about. He was um, thinking about blackbirds that eat 
weird well, things you, off the ground. If you're familiar with <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe's poem, and you can look yes. it up on the web, um, he, this guy, the, the narrator, is mourning the death of his girlfriend, or L'Amour, whoever she is, um, and is just pretty sure that life is terrible and you know, he's going to be more in mourning forever. And he hears this tap, tap, tapping on his window. And, and at first he thinks it's at the door. So he goes and opens the door and nobody there. Uh, and he hears it again, realizes that it's at the window. So he goes to open the window and here's this raven sitting outside. And he opens the window and in pops the raven sitting on top of a bust of Pallas Athena. Um, which I had to look up Pallas in, in, the, uh, in the Wikipedia. You know, I know who Pallas Athena is, but where did she get her name? Um, and there's a couple of possibilities. But the, the most probable one, at least as I understand it, is that it refers to a young person. And she's a goddess, so obviously she's a young woman. Um, but uh, they, they, I, there's all sorts of mythology around that you know maybe there was somebody else named Pallas and she killed the person and wore the person's skin as a trophy uh wow uh wow we're we're pretty deep for a networking show I was gonna say (laughs) mythology on network collective right right. okay so what what Paul what what uh what Scott was thinking about was essentially law enforcement people who would want to wiretap tap, tap, tapping on the window. And they're kind of always there. And if you ignore them, they don't go away. They keep tapping. And, and if you open the window, they come in and sit on your statue of Pallas Athena. You got it. Right. Who is a young, who is a young woman? But anyhow. Um, <laughs> Draw whatever <laughs> conclusions you want from that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatever. Uh, but yeah, so so... In October of 1999, he created the mailing list, or he asked, asked the secretariat to do so. And then he sent a note to the IETF list and said, hi, we're going to have a discussion. Here's what it's about. Here's the mailing list. Go for it. Um, and we got a lot of opinions. Very little fact. And a lot of- <laughs> Something's never changed. I was going to say, you got a lot of opinions out of an IETF mailing list? Wow. Well, (laughs) and the really screwball part of it is that probably one person in four, one person in five was somebody that I recognized from IETF discussions. Most of the people that were talking were people that ride this hobby horse wherever you give them the opportunity, and they heard about this list, and off they went. Um. So I learned an awful lot about international law and about U.S. law and uh, Dutch law and so on and so forth, much of which probably wasn't true. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so why what, I, what I'm hearing, th- there have always been trolls. Is that what we should <laughs> draw from this conversation? And, and this was the universal troll mailing list. Somewhere in the course of things, I was not watching it for a week or two, and, and one of the trolls, a guy in, in Holland, decided that he knew what I thought. And so he sent a note to the list saying, well, you know, so obviously this is true, 
And Fred hasn't told me I'm wrong, so obviously Fred thinks so too. And I got a note from somebody saying, you need to go back and to the <laughs> Uh, Yvonne, I love that technique. I'm going to remember that. It's, it's like denial of service facts. If I say enough, you can't respond to me quickly enough. And so what I say is true. Well, and in the particular case, I told the guy who I, I eventually met, but you know, I, I didn't know then and that he had no basis for deciding what I thought. Uh, you know, I hadn't said anything of the kind, and I'm, how do you know? Uh, but okay, so uh, the the question was basically law enforcement technology. Um, now I want to have a question for you here. This, this isn't a new idea. So the idea of wiretapping or lawful intercept has been around on voice networks since long before 1999 or 2000. And yeah. so was the IETF just dealing with this because we were just starting to dabble in voice on data networks? Was that the, the precursor? Well, and we actually had been dabbling with voice and video on data networks since about 1990 when the M-Bone started. Sure. Uh, but it was becoming important. Okay, now, now history of lawful intercept uh, goes back at least to about 1890. Um, I don't know if you've heard this story, but apparently the person that invented the telephone switch wrote up the concept and went off and got it patented. Um, his issue was that he, he was a funeral director. And in his town, there were two funeral parlors. And the wife of the other funeral director was also the only operator in town. And so if you placed a phone call to a funeral parlor, guess where it went? Um, <laughs> <laughs> to, the, to the wife of the competition is where it went. <laughs> the wife of the competition. Um, and so he, I, I don't know whether he ever, ever actually built it, but he designed, at least in concept, a thing that could replace a telephone operator. Um, and, you know, pretty soon after that, you know. There was, <laughs> I, don't, I don't care if this story is true or not. It's just too good. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a great story. <laughs> okay, so not too long after that, people in law enforcement started saying, well, gee, you know, all this is is two clips, and I can get an alligator clip, and I can go listen in, um, and do the same thing that happens on a party line, which is named for the fact that everybody's wiretapped all the time, um, or that a telephone operator does, but I can do it for me and I can pick a particular phone and follow it or whatever. The first recorded instance of that, I think, is in 1912, but it probably had happened before that. You know, that was when they admitted that it, that it was happening. Typical and, government operation. Hey, you got it. Uh, <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover loved wiretap, used it a lot, and that got pretty seriously out of hand. And so in 1968, uh, Congress basically decided to rein the FBI in. And they wrote this law that people will tell you that it legalized wiretap. It didn't. It tried to normalize, tried to restrict something that was already going on. And so that was called OCCSS. And basically it said, you know, in many pages, but what it said was if you communicate you know, I don't care if it's smoke signals or, you know, 
whatever you might do, the government has the authority to listen in on the communication given a warrant. Uh, so postal mail, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and the big problem that the government had was that there were no teeth in it. There, there was no way to say, it says here in the law, and therefore you have to facilitate me doing it. Um, and that traveled in circles for quite some time. Um, in 1977, I believe there was FISA where you know, the government could do special wiretaps through a secret court. Um, in uh, 1986, there was ECTA, ECTA, I believe, um, which allowed them basically to go get your phone bill and, and, and then be able to do that in real time. You know, this person has now placed, a, or this telephone number has now placed a call to that telephone number. And so one of them is called pen register. The other one is called trap and trace, but basically put a tap on, on, on a telephone and say it has activated and something's going on. And that, not, that, would, that would be similar to the metadata conversation we're having with. That's with very much. Yeah. Okay. In fact, that is the law that uh, NSA invoked with some interesting hyperbole in order to decide that they could go do that. Interesting. Uh, but okay, so we're now starting to play around with this concept of I could, which, by the way, uh, was was first suggested in I think 1964 by Paul Berend in in a RAND study. He's saying, "Gee, you know, what if we take this voice, put it up in packets, and throw the packets around? I'll bet we could reconstitute that into voice." Uh, so now, 1992. Uh, there is enough of that going around between the M-Bone and a couple of kind of prototypical services uh, that um, we're starting to look at um, what law enforcement might need to do in order to gain access to telephone, to, to telephony, should that ever take off and should something happen. And that was law that came out in 1994 and was called Kaleo. Um, and so now this is during the discussion post Kalia and, and now once again with Kalia, um, there, there are a whole lot of verbiage in Galia entitled this and titled that about wiretap and about what, what they called lawful, lawfully, lawfully authorized electronic surveillance, um, and no teeth, nothing that said, but yeah, you have to do it. Um, there's something that kind of started in that direction, but uh, the, the telecom providers were pushing back really hard and it wasn't happening. And so finally, what the FBI did was they went and found a chunk of money and went to Nortel and a couple of the other major switch providers and said, you know, for mere money, could you put the capability in your switch? And well, sure, fine, now it's in the switch. And the argument for, oh, this is too awful, too expensive, too difficult, became a really hollow argument. And uh, so then they started to be able to push through uh, warranted wiretap. Um, this is kind of the same technique they've tried to do with other things in security, right, Fred? I mean, the concept of BGPSEC, they've tried to do much of the same thing. If we can just build it, then people will see how easy it actually 
actually is to build, although it hasn't turned out that way for BGP SEC. But nonetheless, they've tried to do this in other areas as well. Well, yeah. And, and frankly, more power to them. If they have an idea and it's a good idea, uh, putting together a proof of concept or putting together something that would enable people to use it, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I actually see the analog being more along the encryption conversation right now, right? Like, they, I think government really wants a way to be able to backdoor encryption. So, like, whoever's implementing encryption schemes to to write that in, much like asking equipment vendors to build in this equipment, right? I mean, it, no one really wants to do it, but you throw enough money at the problem, it might eventually happen. Then once it happens, it's out there, mm-hmm. and the argument goes away. Well, and of course, this is exactly what NSA did with the random number generator that they put into RSA crypto. Yep. Um, which that that is a backdoor. That's mm-hmm. exactly what it is. Um, and eventually, somebody discovered that there was a backdoor and closed it. But um, but yeah, that, there's certainly that that kind of thing going on. Uh, Okay. Sorry, didn't mean to derail you there. <laughs> no, it's fine. It, it, it's part of the story. Yeah. Okay. So now with Megaco and so on and so forth, we're talking about telephone companies, ISPs, now that we call them telephone companies, uh, using IP, using voice on IP to carry voice traffic. And law enforcement wanted the same thing in the internet protocols that it now had uh, in in the the switches, and um, you know I don't blame them for trying. I, 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 there was some question about allowing them to succeed, um, but you know that that was where they were going and what they wanted to do. Um, and the big observation that. I came to, and these are my words. Uh, I don't think if you look through the, the uh, Raven archives, you'll find exactly this formulation. But I think of uh, anything that we do in the internet as a tool. TCP is a tool that will carry traffic from here to there and ensure it's delivered once and, and in sequence. Uh, IP is a tool that, that gets me somewhere. Wiretap is a tool. And it allows somebody to identify a data stream and, in some sense, gain access to it. Um, And my question is, once you build a tool, who can use it? Uh, If I build a hammer, I can hand it to a carpenter, and he he or she will go build something with it. I can hand it to, uh, to, to somebody else, and they can bash in somebody's skull. You know, the tool doesn't know how it's being used and can't prevent misuse. Um, so if we're, if we're talking about should we create the tool, one of the things that we need to understand is how we will control it, how we will uh, make sure that it's used properly or that it's not used. Um, now, in context... And, and I don't have the citations for this, so I'm probably going to get the year wrong or something like that. But um, there was a detective in the L.A. police who, uh, and I, this is, I think, 1994. Um, there was a detective who put up an illegal wiretap on a payphone and then kind of listened to whatever came in from the payphone 
And every once in a while, he would hear some snippet of the form, meet me at the corner, I'll bring my money, you bring, you know, whatever. And was able to go over to other detectives and say, oh, you're looking at this. You know, maybe you should go ask so-and-so a question. And when that was discovered, well, turned out a lot of the evidence in various uh, cases was tainted. And they wound up having to overthrow about 700 different convictions uh, as a result of the improper use of wiretap. Um, in 1997, I believe, there was another LAPD detective who was working in whatever department it is that, that manages the wiretap, and he got leaned on by the mafia. So at this point, you've got organized crime using wiretap to monitor the police, uh, which maybe is not what they intended. Uh, and then I think this is 2003, the um, prime minister of Greece discovered that about 100 of his ministers had wiretaps on their cell phones. Uh, Vodacom had put a backdoor as a test into their software and these telephones went out and it was apparently supposed to be removed, but it didn't. And uh, so somebody knew about that. And so they discovered that there were wiretaps that their telephone calls were being delivered to someone to this day Vodafone can't tell us who it was that the data was being delivered to. Wow. Uh, and so that's now, interesting that they can't even trace back where it was. Right. Right. You know, I, I would think, okay, so a circuit got installed somewhere, but whatever. Um, but, you know, we were looking at this and saying, we've got this tool. Do you really want to build that? <laughs> yeah. How badly do you want that? How are you going to control it? And what are you going to do with that? Um, and once again, you know, I tend to think that it, there's a few bad apples in law enforcement. The vast majority of people in law enforcement are trying to do the right thing. Uh, I actually don't have a problem with law enforcement having that tool. What I have a problem with is the fact that the guy can get leaned on where the tool can be abused in right. some way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So eventually we came out with RFC 2804 out of the, uh, the Raven discussion. And it has a number of important points. And, and frankly, if you're really interested in this, I'd recommend that you go read the document. Uh, we'll, post okay. a, we'll post a link of it in the, uh, in the show notes. Okay, sure. Yep. Uh, but basically, the IETF decided in the Raven conversation that whether the tool would ever get built or not, it didn't want to be involved. It didn't view itself as the right body. Uh, it quite, a, quite accurately believed that Internet security was already weak, and they didn't want to weaken it any further. Um, and specifically, modifying a protocol to add a feature now you have to think through all of the different ways that that protocol is used and what is the probability of a failure or an error or something like that. And adding protocol requirements for what is essentially weakening security uh, to Megaco seemed like a profoundly bad idea. 
We also wanted to push uh, strong cryptography, which came up in RFC 1984, uh, which, which was about key escrow. And, and once again, I've got my own take on how this is said. Uh, the, I don't think you'll find these words in key in RFC 1984. But okay, I buy a new house, I change the locks, and I, I now have a brand new key. Do I then go down to the police and hand them a copy of the key and say, here, should I ever become a criminal and you need to go investigate my house, just in case you ever need it, here's the key. Um, <laughs> you know, that, I mean, hold on. And by, I, and by I, the way, I'm not going to put the curtains in my window because I have nothing to hide. I mean, it sounds absurd, but is this not the conversation that we're having right now yes, in, it is. As, as to data integrity and security on the internet? Absolutely. And yeah. in the context of 1984, which was about key escrow, that was literally what key escrow is. You know, was, that, was that RFC number planned, by the way? Yeah, that was my question. 1984 is just too ideal. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> Although really, it's really it's not 1984. It's really, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, you're you're not the only person who's made that observation. I mean, a whole bunch of us trooped down to John Postel and said, "Really, where did that number?" Come from? <laughs> yeah. And he swore up and down that it was literally literally the next number in the list. That that there was no engineering of the list. Well, yes, it just depends on how you engineer the list in that case. Right. <laughs> well, if it was intentional, my you know, <laughs> applause, yeah. right? I mean, like, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> but okay, so. At the same time, us saying we don't want to get involved, we had no illusion that that meant it wasn't going to get built. Uh, we figured that somebody would go build it. And so we uh, recommended that whoever built it should please document it in, a, in an open uh, document so that people could look at it and, uh, and, and comment on it. Well, it turns out, and... I actually wasn't involved, but my company and, and uh, Russ's company at the time was in the process of developing a product. Um, and the issue there was um, <laughs> the... Well, only it was a secret project, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so, so the FBI had a thing that they would wheel into data centers and, and attach to, you know, do, do the wire clip thing um, that they called carnivore, car, carnivore, you know, a thing that eats meat. And so the code name for this product that was being developed by said company was herbivore. Uh, and it was an architecture and set of software that we were, Turning around and putting into you know, various products that people use. Um, and the question was kind of, okay, because of customer requirements, we have to meet our customers' needs. If we don't, somebody else will, and then we lose the sale entirely. We have to meet our customers' needs. Uh, but is there any way that we can um, make it more secure and any way that we can improve things? And one of the important uh, contributions that we made in what we published as RFC 3924 um, was that uh, besides using all, all the security tools we had available to us at the time, 
we, we required an audit trail. When, when someone comes in and says, okay, you know, I'm the, the mediation device and I'm installing a wiretap, please, you know, send me all this data. Um, we would create a, a syslog record that would say, this happened. You know, it got turned on, it got turned off. The parameters were whatever the parameters were. Basically, and, and this is before the, the scandal in Greece, but uh, in the event that something like what happened in Greece ever happened, we could turn around and say, okay, look at the log. That went in at this time, and, and here were the parameters, whatever they were. Um, so that uh, so that if, and, and, and in my humble opinion, when the technology got abused, we could investigate it. We could figure out what happened to it. Now, the thing that drove me to, uh, to, to working on the technology and writing, along with two other guys, our, our C3924, was a recommendation from, that I got from a standards body that I will not name, uh, that was in turn driven by a company that I will not name. Um, but th they were in a relatively small country and the, the recommendation for wiretap was, we'll just split every fiber in the country and run one end under the law enforcement agency's door. They take what they want. It's perfectly secure. Nothing can go wrong with this. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and so I'm, I'm in a bar and I'm talking with the, the editor for this other document and he says that and I just choked. Uh, and it's like, okay, I need to be involved in this. And I, by the way, I need an executive position. Um, and um, let's make sure that, that we have it as secure as we can possibly get it. And we have this audit trail. Uh, now, I mean, there, there are other issues in forensic access. But uh, you know, metadata is is certainly one of them. Um, in two thousand and three, I met with the police department of a country who I will not name, who um, wanted to uh, to to do what we now call data retention, and th their idea was, uh, could we please have, for for lack of a better term, I'll call it a call detail record for every TCP session, every UDP session that is ever initiated uh, and, and, and terminated within my small country so that I can now turn around and say, well, so-and-so connected to whatever and, and they did what, whatever they did. Uh, what they really weren't thinking about at the time was the number of web sessions that go through a proxy server or the number of email sessions that go to your local email server. Uh, or, or so on and so forth. They, what, what they learned was that everybody talks to their mail server and everybody talks to you know, servers of various kinds. Often. Often. That's, a, that's an unmanageable amount of data. Like just, well, and, and when they described the, this, and they, they said, the this is what, what we want to do. <laughs> I kind of paused for a minute. It's just, um, and I told them, that they wanted to buy stock in a disk drive manufacturer. Yep. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and, and I don't think the guy understood what I was saying, you know, so obviously the smart guy is going to solve this problem for me, but oh my goodness. Um, so I mean, the, the data retention regulation that eventually came out of the European, European Commission or whatever it was, um, if you decide that it's legal, which is a whole nother question, that actually made some sense. As it said, so this email is going from this email address to that email address. You know, this web access is going to some URL, you know, that kind of thing. Now, now the Europeans, to their credit, ultimately decided that this was an invasion of privacy and let's not go there. Um, and and I, I think that's a good thing. But, uh, you know, that, if you assume it's legal, uh, actually began to make sense. And so now if you look at uh, Council of Europe circular number 185, which is the, uh, the, the, the treaty, the, the regulation, which requires um, uh, ratification in each country, then it, that codifies, says data retention and content intercept need to be capabilities that are there. And the only real question with data retention was how long people would, would keep it. You know, so, so, and we saw various attempts to ratify that in the United States. It never did get ratified. And when the NSA thing came out, you know, it, it was absolutely clear that, okay, they, they are doing what the Council of Europe Treaty 185 actually says. You know, let's collect a lot of data and see what, see what we can figure out from it. Now, the question that I would ask next is, so who, who thinks that only law enforcement collects metadata? Um, Google? Yeah, Google. <laughs> yeah, Facebook. Yeah, Microsoft. Well, pretty much everybody collects metadata. And, you know, and so at this point, if I was law enforcement and, and I wanted to be able to access that kind of thing, I would go to these companies and I would say, you know, could I write a contract with you that says, should I ever have an investigation where I, I want to find something, I can come to you and ask for your metadata. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I have to believe that they've done that. Uh, I'm not aware that they've done it, but I have. To and, and, give, and given the EULA that you probably sign with every one of these, there's absolutely no reason they couldn't share that data pretty much. I mean, you've already pretty, pretty much. much pre-signed uh, a EULA that says, if anybody wants this data, they can take it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I think we've still very much got the problem. Um, it, it's just not limited to the NSA. Yeah, I <laughs> I agree with that. I, I think there's a, a bit of context to that discussion, though, in the sense that you are... If, if you're really concerned about that, there are ways to obfuscate that if you're concerned about it. Systemic government surveillance is harder to obfuscate. Yeah. Right? Because, because Facebook, Google, or whatever are on one end of the connection versus being right smack dab in the middle of it or pulling it from my ISP where it enters the network. There is, there is a difference. I agree that there are, you know, there are <laughs> shades of similarity there. <clears throat> Well, I don't know, though. I don't know, Jordan. I mean, I think you could actually make a case that it's better to do the data collection at the endpoint that there is trying to be in the middle of the network. But well, that's true. I mean, if things are encrypted, you almost have to do it at the endpoint or at, right. at the place where the encryption occurs. Now that said, 
uh, one of the, I'm told, you know, I wasn't there, but uh, one of the wiretaps that NSA put in was in, in an undersea cable that connected two halves of a data center, one, one of which was in the UK and one of which was in the US. Ah, layer two DCI strikes again. (laughs) (laughs) Strike one more reason why it's not a good idea. (laughs) Undersea, (laughs) undersea cable intercept. No, I don't think that one's going to be very relevant. But yeah, you're right. I mean, we we say you know strike a contract with these companies, and that would be the legitimate way to do it. But we know the NSA didn't do that. We know the NSA, you know, found unencrypted transit between servers in the back end of Google and just listened in. <laughs> like, that's what they did. So maybe the contract exists now, but that's not where they started. They just did it. Well, and what Google did was they, they went and encrypted everything. Yeah, good for them. Yeah. Thank you. So now they're the only ones who can <laughs> have that data. So now at least they can get some money when someone's listening in. <laughs> <laughs> or or they, can force the, they can force the government to write a contract that gives them money for giving them the data. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I, I guess I guess my comment about uh, being on the end versus being in the middle is about profiling. And so much about metadata is profiling. And so identifying who I am and what I'm doing. If yeah. I'm using Tor regularly, maybe I'm doing something sp- suspicious or worthy inve- of investigating where Facebook or whatever only knows the endpoint. Sure, they know that there's Tor, but they have no idea who I am. If you can catch who I am in the middle... Um, you know, there's there's a different level of yeah. There's something. Of there's something right, yeah. uh, okay, so hmm. I was having a conversation with the Dutch BVD, which uh, their counterpart to the FBI, I guess, something like that. And I asked the person that I was speaking with, "What are you trying to achieve? What is your objective here?" And he said, "Well, to map criminal organizations." Th- those were his words. He wanted to map criminal organizations. Now, somewhat later, I ran across a a tool that had been developed by a sociologist at uh, UC San Diego, which doesn't work anymore. Uh, The the thing that it depended on in Facebook, um, Facebook removed, it's it's no longer there. Um, But so I went to this tool and gave it my, you know, here's how you log in as Fred and allowed it to access who my friends were. And then what Facebook allowed it to then do was access who their friends were. Now, in medicine, turns out that um, that there's a very strong sense that the the people you communicate with or the the people you live around know more about you than, than you do. If all of your friends smoke, of your friends of friends, if they smoke, odds are you smoke too. If all of your friends and all your friends of friends drink, you probably drink. If you know somebody, you know, if, if your friends are getting cancer, you're cancer prone too. Uh, and this kind of a concept is used in insurance and this, that, and the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do I believe that you're insurable isn't only about me. It's about the people that I associate with and that are, that are in my circle, uh, they, they look at it and they say, okay, well, you know, th- this is what there is. So I looked at the graph that this tool came up with for my friends. And there were 21 different groupings within 900 and some friends. Uh, and I could identify, you know, so this group are the friends of my wife. This group is the friends of my kids. 
this group is people I worked with at this organization, the people I worked with at that organization, and not just people I worked with at that organization, but who then moved on to some other organization. And, and you know, here, here's a, a researcher and his students that I dealt with at, in, in funding research from Cisco. Uh, and and so I, I was actually able to get a pretty interesting picture of Fred from, from this group. You know, and, you know what, what's in common with these people that are my kids' friends? Well, you know, some of them are Orthodox, some of them are Protestant, some of them are Catholic, but they're all Christian. Uh, what is there about my wife's friends? You know, they're Christian and they read books. Uh, and, you know, and you go on around and, you know, what, what's in common with this group? And you learn something about Fred. Um, and now, now if you think about it, and that's, that's where Google, where Facebook, where whoever makes their money. This is right. what they peddle to advertisers. You know, so if if you believe that, well, then, then we can literally map a, a criminal enterprise and kind of say, well, so here are a bunch of people who are wandering around wearing bombs under their vests and, you know, doing whatever. And now a new person comes into the group that we don't know anything about. Uh, well, probably would be worth going and finding out what there is to know about that person. Uh, they may, might not yet, uh, and this is, I'm thinking about minority report here. They may not yet be criminal, but, <laughs> oh, but they will. Yeah. <laughs> Birds of a feather. I hear my mother. <laughs> right. That's you right. Know, and I'm sure the law enforcement uses that, you know, but when you look at the landscape of where we are today and not not just on this issue, but breaches and everything that's gone on, I just kind of assume that people have my data like I, yeah, I, I don't really I mean, how do you what do you do other than just like, yep, yeah, this is the world we live in. Um, I, there, there are some, you can use a VPN everywhere you go. You can stay off Facebook and try to avoid Google, but still your data is in all these other systems. I mean, is there, you know, but is there anything a, to do? But there's a difference between that kind of data and the kind of data Fred's talking about, I think, which is that um, I can reduce my footprint to the point where it's hard to figure out from my social circle because I just don't reveal my social circle. So there's a difference between your social security number being released and my circle of friends actually being known on Facebook or on LinkedIn or whatever it is. And it's not just not people not knowing. Um, it's also there's obfuscation mechanisms you can use, right? Like you can have 12,000 people on Facebook that you're friends with. Now they got to figure out which of those friends are really friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's. I mean, when you talk to people in, you know, who focus in in data security and identity security, that's one of the things they talk a lot about is that whole issue of data exhaust or the idea of, you know, the the little bits of pieces that you put out there and being able to put them back together. And the best way you can obfuscate that is just by adding so much random data points that you can't really associate. Yeah. yeah. And it's, that's interesting. Now, Fred, I want to, I want to put you on the spot a little bit here. We've talked a little bit, you know, uh, about the history and where we're at now. And, you know, you, you seem to have ridden the fence a little bit in the sense of saying, yes, law enforcement needs the tools. And also the other side of it is, is that, you know, 
confidentiality and privacy are, you know, important as part of, you know, just living in society. How do you see the world today? Not, you know, 17 years ago, like what, what's your, what's your perspective on, on what's been going on? I know we've kind of hinted at it, but um, I just want to get your take since you, since you lived through this, this process with the IETF, I'm sure you pay attention. (laughs) And so I'd like to know what your, what your take is. Who, me? Pay attention? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I said a little bit earlier that the vast majority of law enforcement is is really trying to do the right thing. And I continue to believe that's true. Um, I'm not as convinced with the intelligence agencies. If I look at GCHQ, if I look at, if I look at the five eyes, I tend to think that you know they were formulated in order to watch problems that we were having with enemies, uh, with Russia at the time, and, and so on and so forth. But they they seem to be very heavily involved with studying their own populations, and I I think the framers of the Declaration of Independence would have a problem with that, um, and I have a problem with that. Uh, and I think the right solution is going to be a legal one, a legislative one, where Congress comes out and says, listen, scrap all of these old laws. What, what we really need is a law that targets the communications regimes that we have now, uh, gives forensic people the tools that they need and which we agree that they need, and outlaws the rest of it. You know, it makes it be very clear that what's been going on with NSA and so on is just beyond the pale, not acceptable. Okay. Um, I don't think we're going to stop law enforcement or for that matter, organized crime from wiretapping people. Um, I just don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but I, I think they need appropriate and agreed on limits. And, and part of that, uh, the biggest single problem with FISA is that it's secret. Um, and while I certainly don't want to reveal an investigation while it's going on, you know, it's not going to reveal anything if, if, if we do that. But when the investigation is done, I think there needs to be enough of a report that we can go back and say, was that what the law intended? Uh, Was that something that we would consider ethical and something that we want to have going on in our society? And that it needs to have tools that will allow people to come back and say, no, that isn't okay in our society. And it needs to stop. Yeah. So interesting. You know, I think maybe the problem is we're focusing too much on the technology and not on the result in many cases. Like, you know, we want to talk about not being able to put these alligator clips on here rather than thinking about what is it you're trying to gather and what should be legal to gather and what shouldn't. Like, are you trying to figure out where the person was all the time? throughout a 24-hour period? Are you trying to figure out who they're talking to? Um, Are you trying to figure out what they're talking about? 
Are you trying to figure out trigger words that they might be using or a group of people um, or who their friends are? And I don't, I think we classify it far too much in terms of what data can you get access to versus what are you trying to learn about the person sometimes or about the group of people and technology changes too fast quite often for us to, to, to keep up legislatively perhaps with um, I can figure out specifically, I'm going to take these two size alligator clips and put them on there and I can only use this size alligator clip as a way of legislating out this kind of problem perhaps. Maybe there's a, alternate ways we need to look at it to try to solve the problem. Well, and I would go a step further. To, to me, it's really not about the kind of information if it's a legitimate investigation, I think that they should be able to find whatever is going to help them to prosecute the, the, the investigation. Um, but is, is it a legitimate investigation? And you know, that's the place of a warrant. Uh, I, I tend to think that we need a judiciary that w will not just, oh, fine, the guy asked for another warrant, I'll sign. Uh, but you know, is that is that real? Um, and knowing that some summarization of the content of the warrant and the fact that his name is associated with it is going to be public information at some point. Well, guys, I think on that note, we're going to have to close it up here. We're uh, we're getting towards the end of the show. I want to I want to thank Fred for coming on and talking with us sure. again. This was a really interesting topic. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping we can uh, we can find some more things to chat with you about uh, <laughs> about the history of networking. Uh, before we go, though, I want to give uh, everyone else an opportunity to share where you know you can find everybody. So, Donald, how about you? Why don't you Why don't you start? Well, I don't really have anything other than I'm on Twitter. Uh, me, not you, sharp. All right, awesome, Russ. Oh, Rule11.tech as always, Network Collective, and from time to time here and there, wherever else it comes up. Awesome, Yvonne. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network and on the blog at esharp.net. Fred, are you anywhere online? Is it email, Twitter? I mean, you got to be big on Twitter, right, Fred? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have a Twitter account, which I think I've used once. Okay. Uh, no, no, I'm not big on Twitter. <laughs> and frankly, I find most things that people share on Twitter kind of mindless. You know, yeah, I'm sorry, there isn't a whole lot you can say in 140 <laughs> Fred, um, you could have told me that in private. <laughs> and did you say it in less than 140 characters? That's my question. But go ahead. <laughs> uh, so I'm on Facebook, fred.baker.1460. Uh, uh, I use an email address. In fact, I've got several of them. Uh, so in an IETF context, it would be fredbaker.ietf at gmail.com. Okay. Uh, Excellent. Well, thanks, Fred. Um, I'm at BC Jordan on Twitter. Apparently, everything I say is just kind of inane, so don't follow me there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have a blog, uh, jordanmartin.net. Uh, if you want to find more episodes like this, you can go to uh, our website, thenetworkcollective.com. Uh, We're also on Vimeo, uh, vimeo.com slash networkcollective. We have a Twitter account at networkcollectivepc. Hopefully, that's not as a name. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we just want to say thanks for uh, thanks for watching or listening or however you're consuming this. Uh, we just we appreciate you guys. So uh, thanks for another one, and we'll see you next time.